Hi there, this is John Barber welcoming you to Talking Movies number 11. Now, ordinarily, I would have Betty Davis introducing show number 11, and she'll be up in just a short minute. But first, the explanation as to why I am sitting here. Show 11 was to be my first, very, very first live show. I get all kinds of wonderful notes from you in Messenger and on email, and I thought, you know, it'd be great to have you just call in and talk to me. And I loved that. And all the success I had in television was in live television. And of course, in live television, things go wrong. And they went vastly wrong in this show. You see, I can control the content of the show that I create. But I cannot control the technology. I cannot control how the phone calls are handled. I cannot control how the videos are fed into the show. And as Robert Burns said of Mice and Men, everything can go wrong. So what we have done, or not what we have done, but what Stu Shostak has done, my genius, genius webmaster, he has taken the 65 minutes of this show. And the sad thing about it to me is twofold. First of all, we missed four of the greatest speeches from movies. And worse, we had to cut short three fantastic guests, Donald Jeffries, Carol Hainick, and then Joe McBride, and had to trim everything down. <laughs> okay. But as Shakespeare said, brevity is the soul of wit. And I have decided to truncate this show, make it a little shorter for your enjoyment, and never, ever, ever to try to do another live show because it's not necessary. Your emails to me are wonderful. Your messages are wonderful. And there are scores and scores of really fantastic guests that we could spend a wonderful hour with. So... There will be a part two of great speeches and probably a part three because they're just such wonderful things. And I'm also going to expand the show to include other great moments in show business. So for right now, here is show number 11, re-edited by Stu Shostak and introduced by the brilliant opening edited by, edited by Lena Sanek. Thanks so much. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Get that Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough. You're saying, how would you have evaluated your own work uh, in no? some of the films that you did prior to uh, prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. 
He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi there, this is John Barber, and welcome to show number 11 of Talking Movies. This show is actually live, live, you know, and if America which is falling apart, were to come together a little bit, it would still be a country considered falling apart. And I must tell you, in that country, nobody, but nobody, has as much business being as happy as I am tonight for a number of reasons, which we will get to soon. And so first, I must introduce you to my uh, cohort, Right now, here he is, the voice of reason, Doug Newsom. Doug, how are you tonight? And what do you notice different about my wardrobe? Ah, well, hi, John. Hi, everyone. You actually look quite chic, almost military. Generally, you have uh, something a little bit more colorful. This is uh, a new you, and I like it. Well, thank you so much. And the reason for that is, the first we had the first ten shows we had absolutely fabulous professional people, well known in their lines of endeavor, who were really really well respected, and having them as guests, they could not come on on a Saturday night and do a live show. We are going to do a live show tonight where you are the guest, in in, in and also in many respects you're going to be some of the producers and the phone number. It's going to be one eight 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 six two seven six zero zero eight. Now, when I introduced these other guests, I had to wear a suit because I felt I des- they deserved the respect of a suit. And uh, frankly, I love wearing a suit. I used to wear them all the time. And in the 60s and the 70s, when I was Bobby Darren's opening act here in town and Bob Goulet's opening act, every man who went to the show wore a suit. Every woman wore a dress. Even in those days, if you took an airplane, you got dressed to get on the airplane. Now they all look like buses with wings. And at the shows in town, now people dress as though they're going to Walmart or they're going to the beach. So I I miss that a lot. But one of the reasons I am so monstrously happy tonight is because it is January 29th. The age of Aquarius, the age of intelligence. And about five decades ago on January 29th, my son came into this world. It is his birthday. And at the time, I was a struggling entertainer. I was under contract to Westinghouse at $600 a week to replace Merv Griffin when he went to CBS. I had no interest in really having a child, but all that sort of happened by accident. So I'm waiting at the Presbyterian Hospital in the waiting room. My wife, the most peaceful, at peace woman I ever met in the world, would not take anything. It was a natural birth. And after she gave birth, she sent the doctor out. His name was Dr. Files, strange name. And he said, Johnny, your wife told me to tell you that she just gave birth to an eight pound, nine ounce host. 
Well, I bawled like a baby. I was 35 years of age. The first time I cried since I was 12, when my mother said my father was coming home again. So on January 29th, when I was 35, my son actually gave birth to my lucky, magnificent life. And then last night, last night, Netflix aired his eight-part series that he shot in Spain to rave reaction. So that absolutely thrills me. But then more so tonight, I get to be live talking to you about the great speeches in great movies. And I must, first of all, you know, thank the scores of you who sent and shared the last interview we did with Meatloaf. We were scheduled to do another one in five weeks because when we ended the first interview, he yelled at me. He said, hey, John, you only got me up to 1979. There's a whole lot I have to say. And, you know, he said a lot to me off camera. He is and was a very, very strong Trump supporter. But he absolutely loved my jokes about Trump. And he said, damn it, John, I'm in show business. And funny is funny. And this was his favorite. Because right now, you've got our government bashing Putin. You've got our talking heads bashing Putin. Putin, probably the smartest politician in the entire world. But he loved this joke when I said, well, we finally have proof that Putin is a liar. He called Donald Trump a genius. So anyway, that became his favorite line. And again, thank him now. I have to thank you all because when I announced that I was going to do speeches from movies, I had in mind the speech that brought me to the United States when I was a six-year-old kid. From the ages of six to 16, I lived it mostly in a motion picture theater because there was no home to, and the jails were often, often overly occupied so they didn't have room for me. Once in a while, I was at the library, and often I was at a hockey rink. But this was a speech in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Jimmy Jimmy Stewart's speech. And I'll have something interesting to say about that, because everybody who saw that movie thinks that that's what brought down Claude Rains. It was not, but we'll get to that. It's like in The Wizard of Oz. There is never a real ending to that film, and I'm the only critic that ever spotted it. So in any event, picking uh, the first speech that I have is very, very uh, easy for me to pick because it is by far from the most intelligent movie ever written in the United States. Now, you know, it's been my observation about human beings and nature that the greatest driving force in nature is sex. And after that, it's money. And that's so they can get the sex. And when I think of money, I think of three people. First, it's Karl Marx. Karl Marx was the first genius to point out that for 10,000 years of organized human activity in cities and towns and villages, the economic foundation of that village or that city became the foundation for everything in their culture, their religion, their culture, and their politics. 
Now, what we have is we have capitalism. And at its best, capitalism is entrepreneurship, individuality, people inventing things that improve our lives. But at worst, it's unchecked greed, which we have had for well over a hundred years. It's greed and murder. This is honestly a country built on murder. And to increase its economic activity, we went around the world murdering everybody else. And in the 60s, we murdered our own. And you know who they murdered, okay? So, but we're not going to get into that. The, the other person I think of is Polonius in Hamlet. He's giving advice to his son. And he says, son, neither a borrower nor a lender be, for the loan off loses its, both itself and friend. And we've all had that experience. The other person I think of is Donald Jeffries, because Donald Jeffries, who wrote the foreword to my book, wrote by far the best book about economics in this country. It is called, get this fabulous title, Survival of the Richest. And the one chapter alone on Huey Long and how he wanted to transform America's economic distribution so that it would be equal to everyone is probably what got him murdered. It's also what got Martin Luther King murdered. So picking that speech is very easy. Now, uh, Donald, when I talk to you, when we're talking about great speeches from movies, I was stunned at the movie you su suggested in the speech. What was that? I don't know which one I suggested. You, do you recall? Oh, I'll, okay. I'll tell you what it was. He recalled the sales speech no, from Glenn Carey, Glenn Ross. And it was Alec Baldwin's best speech ever in a movie until he finally said, hey, I didn't shoot that, that girl. Anyway, the speech I'm picking is so simple. It is from Patty Shayevsky's network. Now, Patty Shayevsky first came to our attention as a writer in the 50s. He wrote a 90-minute live play. Marty turned into a magnificent movie, I think in which Ernest Borgnine won an Oscar. Now, when I was watching it as a youngster, I thought, God, that guy must have been walking around New York with a tape recorder for crying out loud. How can anybody write such brilliant dialogue about such ordinary people? And there it was. Wow, I was astounded. Then 20 years later, along comes Network. And my God, and I use the word God because Hamlet says what a piece of work man is. So like a God. And those gods, these creators of art and words that improve our lives, are what nourishes me and have always nourished me, and I'm sure a, a lot of you. you know, uh, one, one fellow, I got a dozen notes from people around the world saying, the great dictator, Charlie Chaplin, which I hope he can get to later. And then there was one guy who was a teacher, and he said, for 30 years, John, I taught everybody about American life by the great speeches from movies. He sent me every one of those speeches and the entire scripts of those dialogues. I mean, that is just unbelievable. So in this speech, now Ned Beatty 
plays Howard Beale, the mad as hell guy. They can't take it anymore, right? His speeches are memorable in themselves. So being number one, he thinks he's number one and he runs the world. Mistakenly, like presidents of the United States, he thinks he runs everything. No, the money runners, the money lenders run everything. I mean, you and I are left to elect what the money owners select. And it gets worse every four years. I mean, that's obvious. But what happens is Howard Beale, Peter Finch, gets a call from Ned Beatty. And he says, Howard, would you come over to my office a little bit? I I need to have a chat with you. So he calls him over, leads him into this fabulous room with this long, long desk and sits him down at the end of the desk and gives this speech, which is beyond brilliant. So, Doug, could you please play the network speech from Ned Beatty? You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You think you merely stopped a business deal. That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the price-cost probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock. 
all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. Why me? Because you're on television, dummy. Sixty million people watch you every night of the week, Monday through Friday. I have seen the face of God. You just might be right, Mr. Beale. Donald, are you there? I am, John. Glad to be here. Okay, so you tell me your reactions to the non-finished Ned Beatty speech about money. Well, I'm on the edge of my seat now. I want to hear the rest of it. Because, you know, we're, we're used to hearing the mad as hell I'm not going to take him anymore speech. So, but yeah, that's a, that's a great speech and very powerful. Chayefsky certainly had a, a way with words. Well, also, you had a way with words in Survival of the Richest. And at the top of the show, I mentioned that the one chapter in that book about Huey Long was worth the price of the book. So could you please tell uh, me and our listeners a little bit about what it was that Huey Long said about the distribution of money or redistribution of money that scared the establishment? Well, Huey Long was the, really the first guy to make fun of both political parties. I mean, he'd fit in well today, and he called them Tweedledum and Tweedledee and High Papa Loam and Low Papa Hyam, and uh, he ridiculed them both. He called Hoover and Roosevelt the Twin Towers of Disaster. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, his, his most famous quote about this was saying, it doesn't matter what, what food you're eating when it's all being prepared by the same Wall Street cooks. Oh, you know, my goodness gracious. Anyway, uh, Don, could you very quickly tell me a little bit uh, what Huey Long wa- actually wanted? And, uh, and, uh, Don, and Doug, is that other gentleman still on the phone? Uh, no, they're actually on the, the Zoom. So they just need to unmute and bring themselves in, literally. And then you also have Carol on line four. Well, uh, Carol uh, will have to come later because obviously we're not going to get to some of these fabulous things. Anyway, uh, Don, quickly, tell me a little bit about what it was that Huey Long wanted to do in America to make economics more equitable for everyone. Well, he, he, started a, he started a program called Share Our Wealth, which at the time of the, he was assassinated uh, had, I think, 12 million members, which is quite a bit back then. It was growing all the time. And if you see the great Capra movie, Meet John Doe, a lot of similarities to that to the Meet John Doe clubs, millions of people you know, joining across the country. But he wanted to put a cap on, on uh, in, uh, basically on fortunes. I think it was $5 million or something like that. But he had, and he wanted everybody to have at least a home and a car and a radio, which were the most you know, modern conveniences of that time. But he, his income tax proposal would have exempted the first million dollars of income from all taxes. This was in the 1930s. That'd be like 12 million today. So you know who he was going after. It was the absolute 1% or the 1%, you know, the top, top tier 
And that's why he was so dangerous. He, you know, nobody would have been paying taxes based on any long, and the wealth would have been distributed. You want to, you know, want to know something unusual? Do you want to know what other leader wanted a home for everyone before he built one for himself? No. Gaddafi in Libya. Yeah. And then they that's offed right. him. Right. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for calling. The book is called Survival of the Richest. And bless you, Donald. You are the best. Thank you again so much. Okay. Hi, hi, John. Joe McBride here. Oh, my God, Joe. How are you? How are you? Because, oh, you know what? You might want to stick around for this because you are such an expert on Orson Welles. So, obviously, you called for a reason. What was the reason? Well, you uh, you mentioned great speeches in movies, and I, I love great speeches in movies, and I, I've been making a list of just some. You know, it's a wonderful uh, thing when a, when a great actor has a great script and then they – uh, the Ned Beatty one is one I would have mentioned, and the Chaplin one. But I have others I could talk about if you want me to bring up some of my favorites. Well, not just yet, because I'm going to introduce somebody about whom you're an expert. You've written a couple of books on them, and uh, you have one coming out, uh, another one about Orson Welles coming out. And, oh, my God, what a delight <laughs> to have you. So Good I have job. to tell you this by by introducing it. And we may not be able to stay too long after that because we are obviously not going to get to some of these. And I want to make sure that I get Carol on the phone about something because it was really tough to find a woman's speech. And that is the greatest speech from a curmudgeon that I had ever heard. Now, there was a time, Joe, when I was a film critic and I had some very unhappy experiences with some of my friends and movies that I were watching were just mostly awful. And so uh, I one day accidentally spoke up loud and it was quoted all over the place about my comparing movies to human beings. And I said, you know, movies are like people. 99% of them are shit and the other one is so good. It makes the shit worth waiting through till you get the one that was the good, the good one. And then in my act, I went on to say, you know, I'm at that stage in my life, and I'm too young for this, where my only affection is for old people. And you know why I said that, Joe? Uh. Because they don't have long to live. <laughs> well. And I'm one of them now, okay? Yeah, so, yeah. But this was the time when I saw the third man. Oh, now, yeah. Doug, yeah. listen to me and pay attention because you're going to roll this right now. Right. It is the greatest speech ever about a curmudgeon. It was written by Graham Greene. Orson Welles is the perfect guy to articulate it because he hated little people. And the speech, and I must tell you, Joe, I got 18 requests from around the world to tell me, John, you could not do a great show on great speeches if you did not include this speech. And you know it. It's so famous. It's just called... Mm. The cuckoo speech. Right. So here it is. Doug, play the cuckoo speech. Down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spin? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. Oh, well, you can save money now, Dave. A lot of good your money will do you in jail. That jail's in another zone. There's no proof against me. Besides you. 
should be pretty easy to get rid of. Pretty easy. Wouldn't be too sure. I carry a gun. Don't think they'd look for a bullet wound after you hit that ground. Dug up your coffin. Confound Harbin. You to me. You're just a little mixed up about things in general. Nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. Why should we? They talk about the people and the proletariat. I talk about the suckers and the mugs. It's the same thing. They have their five-year plans. <laughs> so have I. You used to believe in God. Well, I still do believe in God, only. I believe in God and... Mercy and all that, but the dead are happier dead. They don't miss much here, poor devils. What do you believe in? Oh, if you ever get Anna out of this mess, be kind to her. You'll find she's worth it. I wish I'd asked you to bring me some of these tablets from home. Holly, I'd like to cut you in, old man. There's nobody left in Vienna I can really trust, and we've always done everything together. When you make up your mind, send me a message. I'll meet you any place, any time. And when we do meet, old man, it's you I want to see. Not the police. Remember that, won't you? <laughs> Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fellow said, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. Oh, my God. So your thoughts on that speech? Well, um, the cuckoo clock part was added by Wells, and Graham Greene acknowledged that. Uh, that Wells said it was actually an old joke about Switzerland, and he put it in. He didn't claim that he had originated it. A lot of people... Um, you know, mistakenly give credit to Wells for writing the whole speech, and he didn't claim that. And uh, also, the film is so Wellsian in its look that I just, I'm teaching Wells now, and his students said, did Wells direct that? And a lot of people think that because it's got tilted angles, a lot of interesting, you know, shadows and things. Well, I'm going to interrupt you, interrupt you just for just a second, because there's a line in there that says, do you believe in God, Okay. Mm. When I was a youngster, I was looking for a belief because not having a family, I want to know, you know, what's it all about. And I had religion for about 13 weeks. And then then I lost it. Do you remember seeing the play Inherit the Wind or the movie Inherit the Wind? The movie I saw, I haven't seen it on stage, but the movie made a big impression on me as a kid. Okay. It yeah. also yeah. made an impression on me. And that is one of the speeches that I have picked, Doug, that is the speech from Inherit the Wind. Now, the audience should know that uh, it was the play was written by Lawrence and Lee, okay, a mass Broadway success, and it's based on the Scopes Monkey Trial, and the attorney for Scopes, who was teaching evolution, was, of course, Clarence Darrow from Chicago, and one of the leading prosecutors was uh, Bryant, okay? And so... In the movie, Frederick March plays Clarence Darrow. 
and he has Bryant, played by Frederick March, on the stand. Doug, would you please play that speech from Inherit the Wind? Now, sir, I, I, I am right in calling upon you as uh, an authority on, on the Bible, am I not? I believe it is not boastful to say that I have studied the Bible as much as any layman, and I have tried to live according to its precepts. Bully for you. Now, I suppose you can quote me chapter and verse right straight through the King James Version. There are many portions of the Holy Bible that I have committed to memory. I don't suppose there are many portions of this book you've committed to memory. The origin of the species. I am not the least interested in the pagan hypotheses of that book. Never read it. And I never will. Then how in perdition have you got the gall to whoop up this holy war about something that you don't know anything about? How can you be so cocksure that the body of scientific knowledge systematized in the writings of Charles Darwin is in any way irreconcilable with the book of Genesis? Would you state that question again, please? Well, now, let me put it this way. On page 10 of The Origin of the Species, Darwin states... I object to this, Your Honor. Colonel Brady has been called as an authority on the Bible. Now, the uh, gentleman from Chicago is using this opportunity to read into the record scientific testimony, which you, Your Honor, have previously ruled irrelevant. Now, if he's going to examine Colonel Brady on the Bible, let him stick to the Bible, the Holy Bible and only the Bible. You will uh, confine your questions to the Bible. All right. Forget it. We'll play in your ballpark, Colonel. <laughs> now, uh, uh, there, I'd like to get this part clear first. There, this is the book. This is the book that uh, you're an authority on, isn't it? That is correct. You believe that, that every word written in this book should be taken literally? Everything in the Bible should be accepted exactly as it is given there. Now, what about this part right here where uh, uh, it talks about uh, Jonah being swallowed by the whale? You figure that really happened? The Bible does not say a whale. It says a big fish. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it says a great fish. <laughs> but I guess that's pretty, one pretty much the same as the other. Now, what do, you, what, do you th what do you think about that business? I believe in a God who can make a whale and who can make a man and make both do what he pleases. God bless you, Matthew, Harrison, Brady. Amen. Amen. I want those amens in the record. Now, I recollect a, a story about Joshua. Uh, Joshua making the sun stand still. Uh, as an expert, do you uh, tell me that that's uh, as right as the Jonah business? That's a pretty neat trick. I do not question or scoff at the miracles of the Lord, as do ye of little faith. Have you ever pondered what would actually happen to the earth if the sun stood still? You can testify to that if I get you on the stand. <laughs> if, as they say, the sun stood still, they must have had some kind of an idea that, uh, that the sun moved around the earth. Do you think that's the way of things? Or don't you believe that the earth moves around the sun? I have faith in the Bible. You don't have much faith in the solar system. The sun stopped. Good. Now... If what you say actually happened, if Joshua stopped the sun in the sky, the earth stopped spinning on its axis. 
Continents toppled over one another, mountains flew into space, and the earth, shriveled to a cinder, crashed into the sun. Now, how come they missed that little tidbit of news? They missed it because it didn't happen. But it had to happen. It must have happened according to natural law. Or don't you believe in natural law, Mr. Brady? Would you, would you ban Copernicus from the classroom along with Charles Darwin? Would you pass a law throwing out all scientific knowledge since Joshua? Revelations, period? Natural law was born in the mind of the Heavenly Father. He can change it, cancel it, use it as he pleases. It constantly amazes me that you apostles of science, for all your supposed wisdom, fail to grasp this simple fact. That's it. Uh, I saw that in the theater as a kid, and I stood and cheered, and I had no no reason why. And you said it had an impact upon you? Yeah, I mean, I was 12, and I thought, okay, that's a settled matter, uh, and it was well put out both sides got their say and it was clear that tracy's character was right and then i was very surprised decades later when people started questioning evolution again uh, i mean i thought wait a minute didn't inherit the wind settle that question i want to get to to this um because that was about so- believing in something outside of oneself i have often said that anybody who does believe outside themselves in something mysterious or mythological or even a person outside themselves to make them happy, they're going to be disappointed and these people or things are going to break break, the, break their heart, okay? And we can see in America today, and I'm not going to name names, a bunch of literally thousands upon thousands of Americans believing in absolutely lunatic politicians, somebody outside of themselves who's going to break their heart. And I thought of a film that I saw as a kid called Man in the Glass Booth. Do you remember the film? Sure, sure. Uh, okay. the man, You know, you you may or may not agree, but to me... There are probably 10 or 12 great motion picture actors on the screen who are absolutely so powerful you cannot take your eyes off of them. Of course, there's Toshiro Mifuno in Japan. In England, it's Richard Burton at his best. In this country, it's uh, sometimes Marlon Brando, sometimes Jack Nicholson, Humphrey Bogart, even Cary Grant. I couldn't take my eyes off of but probably the most powerful actor in the world who could only handle this film was Germany's Maximilian Schell. Uh, He plays a Nazi commandant who murders Jews. Now, there have been a hundred movies about Jews being murdered. There has never been one movie about the people who murdered the Jews and how could they become so disturbed following a politician that turn, would turn them into inhuman beings who roast people in ovens. And in this film, Maximilian Schell is caught, but he is so insane and he's so violent, he can only testify inside of a glass booth. And the director very smartly had the cross the prosecuting attorney be a woman attorney. Oh my God. 
And there were two speeches I troubled myself over. And one was, she asked him, are you a Jew? And Joe, there's a moment there where he just gets gleeful and recounts scores and scores of Jews that he shot. And every time he shot one, be it a child or a mother or whatever, and threw them in the ground, he cackled about, am I a Jew, am I a Jew? But we've all heard that. But what turns these people and what is turning Americans into lunatics to follow other lunatics? This is the scene where Maximilian Schell talks about how he fell in love with Hitler. Silence. Utter silence. A great wide sweep of the right arm. And so to the tremendous cry, the vast, overwhelming cry, the call of love from the people, Deutschland erwache, Heil Hitler. Sieg Heil! Sieg Heil! Sieg Heil! Why? Why did we love Because we were afraid. And we knew he was afraid. We did not know what he feared. But he did. And he told us. And because we loved him, we believed him. Jew. Yeah, 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 these Juden! They hovered over the fatherland like vultures, he told us. It was marvelous to know, finally, what frightened us, to have it all go away so easily, and therefore to end his fear and our fear. We had to destroy them! That was the need he satisfied in us. That is why he became our good and wise father. That is why we loved him. The killers of the world had our throats. We loved him. The hordes from the east and the west, the capitalists, the communists, we loved him. Starving, we loved him. With his head wobbling, his left arm slack, his hands trembling, we loved him. His generals lost him the war. His subordinates were unworthy. There was only him. There was no successor. Hess was mad. Goering reviled. Himmler rejected. He? He was loved. Raid king. Brave king. Wait yet a little while and the days of your suffering will be over. Already the sun of your good fortune stands behind the clouds. And soon, O oh beloved Führer, soon this sun will rise upon you. He never deserted us. All but he. He only loved to the end. While he lived, Germany lived. And the people demanded it. We never denied him. People of Israel, we never denied him. And those who tell you differently lie in their hearts. And if, if he were able to rise from the dead, he would prove it to you now, all over again. If only... If only we had someone to rise to, someone to throw out our arms to, love to stand our feet for, someone this marvelous father to tell us what we are afraid of and to tell us how to get rid of our fears forever, for any time, anywhere, any place. That is whom we will love. That is for whom we will kill And in killing, we would live and be cleansed of fear. 
Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles, über alles in der Welt. That is your thoughts. Some actor, um, I was just remembering that the first film class I taught in 1975 with Maximilian Schell was one of our guests. Oh, wow. Wonder, wonderful guy. And, you know, he was in Judgment at Nuremberg, of course, and he yeah. won an Academy Award for that. And that's one reason they cast him in this film. Uh, he was a very down-to-earth fellow. We all went out to the House of Pancakes with him afterwards. He's a very unpretentious guy. He had directed a film, and Martin Ritt was in it. It was called The Pedestrian. And in the same class, we had Fritz Lang and Howard Hawks and Rowan Oh, Polanski. my God, how wonderful. You know, the writers of this were Ed Anhalt and Robert Shaw. They were mm -hmm. the writers. And I don't think another actor could have. I mean, maybe Jack Nicholson could have pulled it off. But Shell was just absolutely, absolutely riveting about all of this. I, I had a, I, I got, I got uh, calls and notes from people, as I mentioned, mentioning... Mm -hmm. uh, Shakespeare's plays that are turned into films and I should find the clips. Shylock about the Jews and Portia about the quality of mercy is not strained. I had a very difficult time. I'm going to have to leave out a couple of the things I wanted to show. We're going to have to show them at another time. We're going to have a part two or three or four or five because I have two dozen great speeches. I have to go to something about a woman And so I have to go back to Paddy Shaevsky in Network, which you will remember, because in this COVID crisis, a lot of people, couples, have been forced to stay home and face the fact that they have to live with one another alone by themselves for maybe a year. Mm -hmm. And a lot of husbands and wives are finding out they married the very wrong people. Now, that is not the essence of this scene. The essence of this scene is Bill Holden thinks he's fallen in love with Faye Dunaway and has had an affair with her. And he has to tell his wife. And Patty Shaevsky wrote this scene between a husband and a wife And Carol Haining is on the line waiting to talk about that particular scene along with you. And so, Doug, I hope this scene is intact because there's not a wasted word or a wasted line in that scene. How long has it been going on? A month. I thought it was a transient thing, blow over in a week. I still pray to God it's just a menopausal infatuation. But it is an infatuation, Louise. There's no sense in my saying I won't see her again, because I will. You want me to leave? Check into a hotel? you love her? I don't know how I feel. I'm grateful I can feel anything. I know I'm obsessed with her. Let's say it. Don't keep telling me that you're obsessed, that you're infatuated. 
say that you're in love with her. I'm in love with her. Get out! Go anywhere you want. Go to a hotel, go live with her, but don't come back. Because after 25 years of building a home and raising a family and all the senseless pain that we have inflicted on each other, I'm damned if I'm going to stand here and have you tell me you're in love with somebody else. Because this isn't a convention weekend with your secretary, is it? Or, or some board that you picked up after three belts of booze. This is your great winter romance, isn't it? Your last roar of passion before you settle into your emeritus years. Is that what's left for me? Is that my share? She gets the winter passion and I get the dotage. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to sit home knitting and purling while you slink back like some penitent drunk? I'm your wife, damn it! And if you can't work up a winter passion for me, the least I require is respect and allegiance. I hurt, don't you understand that? I hurt badly. <laughs> oh, say something for God's sake. Got nothing to say. I won't give you up easily, Max. I think perhaps it is better if you move out. Carol, thanks for waiting your comments about that scene. And by the way, your unbelievable book, The Greatest Reviews I Ever Read. So thank you so much for that. Your comments about that scene. Well, thank you, John. Are you able to hear me? Yes, very clearly. What a nice voice. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, uh, as a writer, I just love listening to the dialogue and watching their expressions. You know, there's so many movies now with uh, special effects that don't impress me. It's more the writing and the acting that, that blows me away. But what and, about um, this, I Angel? Look- Excuse me, I hate to interrupt you, but aren't you divorced with children? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Did any of this I'm, ring I'm, a bell to you? Um, I actually, <laughs> I felt for him more than her, to be honest with you. Um, I just felt like he was, I liked his, when he said the menopausal infatuation and then his resolve, I, I liked those lines. I just felt like he was realistic about the situation. And I remember the scene where he has with, say, Dunaway, and to me, her reaction to him was just mind-blowing. I just okay, felt, so they, um, there you go. I'm sorry, I, I have got to say this. The greatest closing I ever saw in a movie, you might remember this, Joe, and you might remember this also, Carol, is the movie Amadeus. In the movie Amadeus, okay, absolutely 
wonderful, wonderful film. Uh, there's a character named Solyari, a musician who has abhors the younger, more talented Mozart, belittles him, plagiarizes his music and becomes successful more so than Mozart. But at the end of the movie, he is driven to insanity and placed in a loony bin. And he becomes the god of mediocrity. And this is how that film closes. And this is going to be the closing scene of our film. And when it's over, I will say thank Joe and Carol and all of you and wish you luck until the next show. So uh, please, Doug, play that scene called Mediocrity. Your <laughs> merciful God. He destroyed his own beloved rather than let a mediocrity share in the smallest part of his glory. He killed Mozart and kept me alive to torture. 32 years of torture, 32 years of slowly watching myself become extinct. My music growing fainter all the time fainter, till no one plays it at all. His. Good morning, Professor. Time for the water closet. And then we have your favorite breakfast for you. Sugar rolls. Love those. Fresh sugar rolls. I will speak for you, Father. I speak for all mediocrities in the world. I am their champion. I am their patron saint. <laughs> Mediocrities everywhere. I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you all. <laughs> Mediocrity would de describe a little bit of this show. It would describe all of our government, but superiority and professionalism describe Joe McBride and Carol Hennigan, and thank you so much for calling in. And I promise you, the next show, we missed great, great speeches. The next show will not be a clusterfuck. It will be a really professional show. And if it's not, you won't see me. Until then, bless all of you, and the best of luck to you. Joe, would you like to say good night? Carol, would you like to say good night? Good night, John. I enjoyed the speeches we did get to hear. We heard a lot of great stuff, so thank you. Carol? Yes, thank you. Oh, well, thank you both so much. Till number 12, the Dirty Dozen, this is John Barber wishing you all a very, very happy two weeks. Bye-bye. <laughs>